Welcome to Speaking of Grace, the weekly message podcast from the Whole Life Church in Orlando, Florida. We're a multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multi-generational congregation committed to our mission of loving people into a lifelong friendship with God. We are committed to our vision of being a church without walls, fully engaged in serving the people of our community. Thank you for joining us as we continue Speaking of Grace. This week we're on the second sermon of a three-part series called Holy Encounters, where people had experiences with Jesus that they might not have expected. Let's pray together. God, we pray that your spirit would fill us. We feel it here today. We want to be moved by it. So we invite you into our hearts right now. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was growing up, there was one person I could always count on. And that person was my little brother. This is us when we were kids. I'm the one on the left. (laughs) Isn't he cute? Doesn't he look angelic? (laughs) Be not deceived. Because when I said I could always count on my little brother, what I meant was I could always count on him to rip the heads off my dolls, to scribble in my coloring books, to eat my chapstick. I must have realized fairly early on in my tenure as big sister that I wasn't really cut out for the role. My mom remembers me coming to her one day when I was little and putting my hands on my five-year-old hips and saying, Mother, don't you ever do this to me again. (laughs) I don't actually remember doing that, but it must have made an impression because I have a grand total of one sibling. When he got older, he came up with new and innovative ways to terrorize me. On long trips, he would cross the indisputable middle line in the back seat and encroach on my territory, or maybe what's worse, get as close to the line as possible and then make faces at me. (laughs) I could always count on him to find the noise that would make me the most angry and then perform that noise on repeat for hours. And my brother has a superpower. He was able to do all of these things to me and somehow managed to make them invisible to my parents. When I was 13, he stole my diary and took it to school and let all the boys take turns reading it in the boys' bathroom. Yes. When I was 15, he broke up with my boyfriend for me in the church lobby in front of a whole lot of people. I did not ask him to do this. You just, well, I have to admit, you know, that when I, uh, when I look back on things, it kind of worked out for the best. So I don't know, maybe I need to thank him for that. But my little brother and I were so different. I never got in trouble. Well, uh, I take that back. There was this one time when I was two, I colored on a wall with a crayon. My parents said, don't do that anymore, and so I didn't. 
and that's pretty much the extent of my criminal history as a child. And if you don't believe me, my parents happen to be here today. You can check, check with them on the veracity of my claims. My little brother, on the other hand, I would have rather crawled under a rock and died than get into trouble. But my little brother, for him, it was just the admission price for adventure. It was the price of fun, and he didn't mind paying it. It didn't matter what punishment my parents dreamed up. He did not let it impede him living his fullest life. Much to my righteous indignation, of course. Now, some of you right now are thinking about your own families, and you're realizing that either you have that sibling, or you are that sibling, and you know who you are. But if we asked my parents which one of us they loved the most, they would say what all good parents say. We love you exactly the same, right? And I believe them, which is why I suspect that when they die, they're leaving everything to the dog. By the way, for those of you who have a sibling, the young people that have a sibling who currently makes you fantasize about being an only child, just hang on a little bit longer. It gets better. Now my brother and I, now that we're grown-ups, we actually spend time together on purpose. And he also has two of the cutest little carbon copies of himself, and I get to be Auntie Mel, and so that sweetens the pot quite a bit, too. But that's what we expect parents to say, right? Good parents, competent parents, responsible parents. We expect them to love their children equally, treat them equally. And yet we've all seen those parents, haven't we? Who lavish praise and affection on one child while the other child is neglected, ignored, or maybe worse, compared Parents who do that to their children are irresponsible and they deserve our moral outrage. Would you agree with me? So what do we do then when it seems like God favors some children over others? The Bible re- repeatedly reassures us this is not the case. James, James, Romans, Acts, Deuteronomy, Job, we're told over and over again, God doesn't show favoritism. But then we turn to Genesis 4 and we see a story of a couple of siblings and God looks with favor on Abel's offering and rejects Cain's offering with no apparent explanation. Then we get to Malachi 1 and we read that another set of siblings here, God loves Jacob and hates Esau. How do you spin that? I don't know about you, but I've looked around before and I've wondered, is God's love uneven? Is it? At the very end of the Gospel of John, there's a big reveal There's a key that unlocks the mystery of this book because throughout this book, there is an unnamed disciple character. And when we get to the very end of the book, we find out that this entire book that we've been reading this whole time was written from the perspective of this unnamed disciple. Of course, when we read the other gospels, we can figure out pretty quickly that this unnamed disciple was actually named John. 
And we don't know for sure if John actually wrote the gospel or not, but it was written from John's perspective. The interesting thing is the author of John never says John. The author of John calls this disciple the disciple Jesus loved. Now, Jesus had 12 disciples, but he had one that he loved. If John did this, it's pretty brazen, don't you think? It makes me wonder if he ever actually said this out loud in front of the other disciples. I'm the one Jesus loves. I'm the favorite. I can imagine that probably didn't go over very well. Especially with Peter, because Jesus nicknamed Peter Rock. That's what Peter means in Greek. It means rock. So you've got rock, and you've got disciple that Jesus loves. I know there's a little disparity there, don't you think, in which you would rather be called? I can imagine Peter saying to John, are you kidding me? The disciple Jesus loves? I don't want to hear you say that. I don't want to hear you say that ever again. And when Jesus turns his head, you are going to get it. When I read some of the shenanigans and conversations that the disciples have in the Gospels, I think Jesus must have had the patience of Job to deal with those guys. But I think I, I, think I have some idea of what it must have been like for Jesus to travel with the disciples because even though my kids are grown now, I vividly remember taking them to the grocery store. And even as well-behaved and little angelic creatures that they were at home, as soon as I got them in the public eye, I don't know what it is. It's like they felt invincible. They felt outside of the realm of their mother's punitive powers. And so my sweet little angelic creatures would be running up and down the aisles at the grocery store, accidentally knocking things off shelves, reaching into my purse and pulling stuff out, trying to open cereal boxes from the wrong end because they needed a snack, of course, and asking me, Mom, Mom, can we have this? Mom, can I have this? Mom, can I put it in the cart? Mom, we need this. Mom, can I please have this? No, you cannot have that. It's denture cream. You don't have dentures. Put it back. Stop touching stuff. And I find Jesus traveling around with the disciples, and half the time the disciples are also acting like little kids. Hey, Jesus, Jesus, which one of us is the greatest? How are you going to feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish? Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we be like on your right and left? I can just imagine Jesus saying, guys, when I said you must become like little children, this is not what I was talking about. (laughs) And here in the book of John, we find what seems to be sibling rivalry, particularly between two disciples. And the interesting thing is, every single time, with the exception of once, Every single time John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loves, Peter is right there next to him. Every single time except one. And if you're paying attention, you notice that if you're not, you won't because it's buried in some significant moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. Commentators gloss over it because they're so focused on the big thing that's happening. But if you pay attention, you'll see a little bit of sibling rivalry. In John 13, we find the disciples gathered around the table with Jesus for the Last Supper. And then Jesus completely changes the mood of the meal by giving them some shocking news. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. 
His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple that Jesus loves, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Peter says, hey, John, he likes you. You ask him. And John, leaning back against Jesus, says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus gives him an answer. All the other disciples are sitting there, and it seems like nobody else is quite comfortable asking Jesus this serious question. But John doesn't have a problem. In fact, he leans back and asks. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the disciple Jesus loves, doesn't it? And then later on that same night, we find that the disciples are following Jesus after he's been arrested. And this disciple and Peter arrive at the gate to the high priest's house. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. And because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. Well, John, did you have to add that part? I could go in because they knew me. But Peter had to wait outside until I used my connections, of course, to get him in. So, when he was, since he was well-known to the high priest, he came back and spoke to the servant girl. He used his connections and got Peter inside. But then you know what happens after that? The servant girl recognizes Peter and says, hey, you're one of his disciples. And Peter ends up denying Jesus, just like Jesus said he would. And the rooster crows and Peter is devastated. And for Peter probably would have been better if the disciple Jesus loved had just left him outside. Then we come to the cross. And Jesus is hanging on the cross and he looks down and he sees his mother. Incidentally, this is the one mention of the disciple that Jesus loves where Peter is not next to him. I don't know if Peter is standing somewhere nearby or if he's still hiding in shame because because he's denied Jesus. But John is down there at the foot of the cross and Jesus sees both of them and he says to her, woman, here is your son. And he says to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. At that point, Jesus had 11 other disciples to choose from, but he chose the disciple that he loved. Yeah, sounds like the disciple Jesus loves. We come to resurrection morning. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and said, and the other disciple, the the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Seriously, John, is this not a little bit petty? And then four verses later, just in case we forgot that John's athleticism exceeded Peter's, he reminds us that the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went inside and believed. I'm beginning to feel a little sorry for Peter. What about you? Somehow he always manages to be in the shadow of the one Jesus loved. 
Ever felt like Peter? Maybe you've been praying and asking God to intervene in a situation in your life. Maybe you're having financial issues or health problems or relationship issues and you have prayed and you have laid it all out before God and you have surrendered and you have asked God for help and God is unnervingly silent. And then you come to church or you show up to your whole life group and somebody says, I have a miracle that I want to talk about. You're not going to believe what happened. I didn't know how I was going to make my mortgage payment. But then I went out to my mailbox and there was a check there that I wasn't even expecting. And it was just the amount I needed to be able to make my mortgage payment. Praise God. And somebody else says, oh, you know, I had a tumor. And I thought I was going to have to have surgery and chemotherapy, but then I was anointed and prayed. And I went back to the doctors and the doctors were absolutely amazed because the tumor had disappeared. Praise God. And you're sitting there listening to these stories and, and you're happy for them. But there's still a little part of you that wants to say, well, how nice for you. You must be the one Jesus loves. Several years ago, our son, Bo, had just finished his first year at Southern, and he was home for the summer. This is Bo. He was home for the summer, and he got a job at a local restaurant, because some of his friends were working there. And one night, at the end of, the, at the end of his shift, he realized that another server had a lot of work still left to do. She was behind. And he said, let me help you out. So he stayed, and he helped her finish her side work. And they left at the same time, and as they walked out of the restaurant, she lit up a cigarette. And he teased her. He looked over at her and said, what are you doing? Put that thing away. That's not good for you. And then he said, seriously, you know, you need to live every day like it's your last. And then he got in his car, but he never made it home. He was five minutes away five minutes and he happened to go through an intersection at the exact same time that a 17 year old drunk driver with a car full of friends ran a red light at 70 miles an hour hit him in the driver's side her son was wearing his seatbelt, but the impact of the crash was so severe that he was still ejected from the car and the paramedics finally found him but there was nothing that they could do he was too broken, and he was pronounced dead on arrival. Someone later did the calculations of the positions of the vehicles and the different speeds of the vehicles, and they mentioned that if Bo had entered that intersection one second sooner, or one second later, he would still be alive. One second. And I remember being at the funeral home, looking over, seeing my youngest son. I'll tell you, the hardest thing I have ever had to do is tell our three younger boys that their big brother wasn't coming home. And at the funeral home, I looked over and I saw my youngest son, Jagger, and he was standing there at the casket and he was looking down at his big brother. His big brother that they, they shared bunk beds. His big brother taught him, taught him how to play basketball. He would also sneak him to Taco Bell if they didn't happen to like what I was making for dinner. I saw him there and I wanted to comfort him, so I went over and I put my arm around him. 
And the funeral home had done a really good job of minimizing the appearance of trauma on Bo's face. But the makeup had begun to peel. And Jagger looked and saw something that horrified him. And he looked up at me with panic on his face and he said, Mom, look at his eye. And I wanted to comfort him. So I said, honey, the crash happened so fast. He probably didn't feel it. And Jagger slipped out of my arms and fell down onto the carpet. And he said, I know, Mom, but I feel it. Can't argue with that. You also can't put a Band-Aid on that kind of pain. You can't kiss it and make it better. As a parent, it's one of the most hopeless feelings in the world. A few days later... I heard a knock at my door. It was late at night, and it was Jagger. And he came in. I could tell he had something on his mind. And I said, what's going on? What are you thinking about? So he had tears in his eyes. What's, what are you thinking? And he asked me a question that I will never forget. He said, Mom, why do we pray and ask God for protection when God let Bo die? It was an honest question. And it deserved an honest answer. And so I told him the truth. I said, Jagger, I don't know. I don't know. That question came back to me months later. I was sitting on my bed, had my computer, I was scrolling through social media. And I saw a picture of a car that, well, it used to be a car. It was just a crumpled heap of metal. And one of my friends had posted this picture of this car, and she was celebrating because her mom had been in that car. Her mom had lost control of the car. It had flipped several times. It was a convertible, by the way. It had flipped several times, and her mother walked away from that accident with barely a scratch. And in her post, she was saying, I'm so thankful. God must have sent angels to wrap their arms around my mother and keep her safe. And she said, I was so excited by this miracle that I called my two little boys over and I showed them the picture of the car and I told them that grandma was okay. And I said, do you see this boys? This is why we pray and ask God for protection. And don't get me wrong. I was so thankful that her mom was okay. And I was so grateful that her post was a celebration and not grief. But there was a part of me, as I sat there staring at my computer screen with the tears rolling down my face that wanted to say, well, how nice for you. You must be the one Jesus loves. Somebody asked me, who heard our story, asked me, do you ever just want to tell God, forget it, you're done? Just turn your back on God and walk away. And I thought about it. And I said, where would I go? Where would I go? There is no one else. There is nothing else. And even if I kick and scream and cry and pound my fists on God's chest and threaten to pack up my toys and run away from home, God is still the only place where hope still lives. 
And in John chapter 6, we find that Jesus is surrounded by people who have really enjoyed the fact that he had fed 5,000 people with loaves and fishes. But then Jesus started talking metaphorically. He started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and they did not get it. They thought it was gross, and they got up and left. And Jesus looked around at his 12 disciples, and he said, you're not going to leave too, are you? And Peter spoke up this time, and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I never understood what that really meant until much later. Toward the end of the Gospel of John, we find that Peter and the other disciples are in the boat. And they've been working all night long and they haven't caught anything. And then a guy shows up on the beach and he calls over, hey, try putting your nets on the other side of the boat. They didn't have anything to lose, so they threw the nets on the other side. And then all of a sudden, the nets were ripping and tearing because there were so many fish and it was so heavy and they were flopping and splashing. And of course, it was the disciple that Jesus loved who apparently had better eyesight who realized who it was on the beach. And he said to Peter, that's the Lord. And Peter jumped out of the boat and went sloshing through the water trying to get to Jesus. And Jesus makes them breakfast right there on the beach. And when breakfast is over, Jesus and Peter go on a walk. Because they need to have a conversation. They need a private, intimate conversation because the last time they were in the same room together, Peter had denied Jesus. It's a necessary conversation. And so, of course, who happens to be trailing along behind but the disciple that Jesus loves? And his presence doesn't go unnoticed by Peter or Jesus. And you know what? This is the moment. This is the moment for Jesus to tell Peter, don't worry. I love you. I love you. I love you both the same. And Jesus doesn't do that. He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And then Jesus indicates the way that Peter would die. He says, someday somebody's going to come along and they're going to dress you and they're going to lead you somewhere where you don't want to go and they are going to spread your hands out. And I can only imagine that in Peter's mind, he could see the bleeding hands of Jesus on the cross. And Peter realized that he was also going to be crucified. And he can't stand it any longer. So he turns around and he points behind him. And he says, yeah, but what about him? And Jesus says, it's none of your business, Peter. It's none of your business. Who, what is it to you if I want him to remain alive until I come? You must follow me. What is it to you if I relate to him differently? You must follow me. Now, I probably would not have been satisfied with that response. You know why? Because I want justice. I want answers. 
I want to know what happened. I want to know why God couldn't distract Bo for one second. I want a happy ending. And sometimes it's really hard to remember that my story hasn't ended yet. And in the meantime, Jesus says, what is it to you? What is it to you if my relationship with other people is different from the relationship I have with you? What is it to you? You must follow me. What is it to you if I share my will with someone else and I don't share it with you? You must follow me. What is it to you if I decide to let your mom's, your friend's mom live? You must follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. Besides, Jesus never actually called John the disciple that he loved. John called himself that. <laughs> but how secure must he have felt in his relationship with Jesus to have the confidence to say, I'm the one Jesus loves? But if God is not handing out this term of endearment, and it's something we claim for ourselves, regardless of our circumstances, then maybe I'm the one Jesus loves. Maybe you're the one Jesus loves. The sun is rising up over the Sea of Galilee, warming the rocks, the waters nudging the shore, and Jesus and Peter are taking their walk. And Peter turns around to glance behind him, and Jesus says, no, Peter, no, look at me, look right here. Don't waste your moment here on the beach with me looking at him. Look at me, Peter, right here. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Thank you, Albert, and the music team, and thank yes. you, Melanie. Um, thank you for talking to us about something that... Um, I know uh, sharing that, that um, story about Bo um, wasn't easy, but I know it, it hit home for a lot of us. And I just want to say thank you to Tim as well. I know that that is not an easy story to hear. Um, so thank you for honoring us by sharing that story with us so that we can know you and also be encouraged that we're not the only ones that sometimes feel like Jesus doesn't love us or loves other people better. Um, this is the part of our church service where we give you the opportunity to respond to what you've heard, to share, to ask questions. And uh, you can do that by going to wholelife.church slash live, and you can uh, put your questions, comments into the, uh, whether you're viewing us online or whether you're here in person. We are running a little tight on time today, but I do want to go ahead and get to at least one question. Okay. Is that okay, Melanie? Well, it's okay with me. Is it okay? All right. Well, I guess they'll leave it there. It's not okay. So there we Fair go. Enough. So we're going we're gonna to ask one question. 
Uh, we're going to ask you one question. And uh, by the way, if you do have questions, still please send them in because um, uh, we're going to, Melanie's going to go ahead and answer these along with Jeff on our podcast this week. This is Whole Life. Um, found wherever podcasts are, are at, you're welcome to listen to that. Um, Sharon asked a question. She said, please expand on the thought that God loves us all the same but how much different our life experiences are and how different the results of our prayers can be. So I think she's wanting a a part two to this sermon. (laughs) But that's a good question. Well, I will, I'll just, I'll say this. We're we're just off the cuff here. I will say that psychologists say that it is impossible for parents to love each of their children exactly the same because they have a different relationship with each child and it's just going to be different. So I don't know that God has the same relationship with everyone or loves everyone exactly the same way because I think we each have our own different special relationship with God. Boy, that should make you want to tune in to more on the podcast, right? Because I know we'll get into that a lot deeper. So you can look forward to that. Again, if you have questions, go ahead and send them in. You're always welcome to uh, send them to our church email addresses. Um, any one of us would be happy to, to take those questions and put them on the podcast. And Melanie, I just want to thank you again for, for just inspiring us to re- be reminded that uh, it's our walk with Jesus. Let's pray together. God, thank you that your love, your love, your love never fails. Even if we don't feel it sometimes, we pray that you would open our hearts to you and help us to love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Melanie said I couldn't get away with this without doing this. So, you know I love you all the same, but maybe differently. (laughs) But maybe differently. Now go love your world. Hi, this is Randy McGray, podcast producer and host here at Whole Life Church. Loving people into a lifelong friendship with God is our mission at the Whole Life Church, and our podcasts are designed to help facilitate conversations that help us grow together in that pursuit. Now that you've heard the message for this week, don't forget to check out the Whole Life Takeaways for this message. Swipe up in today's show notes and join the conversation. Speaking of conversations, each Wednesday morning we take a closer look at the week's message. That's right, the one you just listened to. We discuss practical ways to apply spiritual lessons and ask honest questions about the issues we face as Christians, all focused through the lens of grace. Your voice is a welcomed addition to that conversation. We encourage your thoughts and your questions by sending a voicemail or text to 407-965-1607 or send an email to podcast at wholelife.church. You can find everything podcast-related on our website, wholelife.church slash podcast. And plan on spending every Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning with us as we bring you the Whole Life Church inspiration you love straight into your headphones. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.